Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Our species has coexisted with carnivores for as long as we've walked on this planet. And as the globe's top predator, we've developed an interesting relationship with carnivores. A mix of fear, reverence, persecution, and admiration. As we allow carnivores to return to their native territories, we are relearning how to coexist with predators. Even though we've gained a tremendous amount of knowledge in the past century, our feelings towards deadly creatures haven't changed, and conservationists are stuck in the middle of human-carnivore conflict. So, how do we live with carnivores? Do they hold the secrets in their biology that can inform us on how to avoid conflict? And are there any global truths to living with predators? To take us on a global carnivore tour, today we are sitting down with Micha Krofo, PhD, head of the Wildlife Ecology and Management Research Group at the University of Ljubljana and a member of the IUCN's Cat Specialist Group, Canon Specialist Group, and Large Carnivore Initiative for Europe. Mirha was first drawn to paleontology as a young child and loved learning about the past's extinct carnivores. However, when it came time to decide what to do with his life, he made the conclusion that sitting in a museum looking at dead things wasn't nearly as fun as studying a live species in the wild. So in university, Mirha made the switch to wildlife biology and became an expert on Eurasian lynx ecology and behavior. He also carried a dream of traveling the world, and through luck and perseverance, Miha has worked in several countries on various continents studying the area's carnivores. Miha is truly a global carnivore expert and has published a ton of papers on predator ecology, behavior, and conservation. Through this episode, we are adding three more countries to the show's country list. Miha and I discuss Eurasian lynx, brown bears, and golden jackals in Slovenia. We then hop across the globe to chat about lions, cheetahs, and leopards in Namibia. Following, we take another oceanic leap and learn about snow leopards and palace cats in Mongolia. We wrap up the conversation with a nice pretty bow and talk about carnivore coexistence on a higher scale and explore the ups and downs of Miha's career. If you enjoy a hardcore science conversation that you can't walk away from, then you won't want to miss a moment of this episode. Really quickly before we dive in, I have a tiny favorite to ask of you, dear listener. We are currently putting together a massive grant proposal to send to a well-known organization, one that I know you know very well, to hopefully fund an exciting podcast series in the field. To help the show look as awesome as possible to the grant committee, could you maybe please take a moment and leave an up to five star rating on your favorite podcast app? You don't have to leave a review, but if you feel up to it, I'm sure the committee would love to read why you enjoy the show. So thank you all so much. All right, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Mija. Well, hi, Miha. Thank you so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast and sitting down with me and the entire community and taking us quite around the world today to talk about a very special group of animals, you know, our large carnivores. Before we get to all of that, though, in this global tour that we're going to go on, 
what is your journey? How did you get to what you're doing today? Yeah, hi everyone, and thanks for inviting me. I guess my journey started a bit in the past. I was really into paleontology when I was a, when I was a kid, like in high school. Uh, and it was the first time I think I got really interested in cats, especially like European cave lions and these big fellas from the past. But then, yeah, later I got a bit more, you know, I was thinking of what I want to do when I grow up and actually get a job. <laughs> and I said, may, maybe, you know, just sitting in a museum looking at rocks is not the most exciting thing one can do for a living. Right. <laughs> so then this is when I kind of switched then more into wildlife biology. So to actually be out there and, and do stuff in the field with living animals instead of dead ones. Right. Yeah. And then during my college years, um, I got involved in uh, lynx research, wildcat research. And I guess this is how it started. And then later on, yeah opportunities were coming by so i kind of expanded and started working elsewhere but yeah it all started back in my home country in slovenia where we're lucky enough to still have population of we call it european big cat although it's not really a big cat it's eurasian lynx and this is how i started yeah my career just mainly snow tracking this animal and why exactly did you decide to take the carnivore route i mean there's plenty of wildlife in Europe and across the world that you could have focused on. Was there something that drew you specifically to this group of animals? Definitely, but uh, I'm not sure if I can actually identify what it was. I just, mm. I was just always attracted to predators. Maybe just, you know, aesthetically, I guess. And yeah, also they are like one of the most difficult, most elusive animals in many ecosystems to find. So there's kind of a, you know, this mystic around them. And uh, I'm sure I was also influenced like by watching the wildlife documentaries and then mm -hmm. predators also have a big role there. So I guess right. it was also part of that. Right, right. No, I totally agree. I definitely have been in a very big infatuation with large carnivores and the same thing. It was, you know, the Discovery Channel when I was young, just <laughs> watching, you know, lions in the Serengeti. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what can I do to save them? I'm completely in love with them. So then focusing more on your PhD, which I think reading more online of your work seemed to set the foundation for the rest of what you end up doing. So I don't want to spoil it. What what did you study when you were going through your PhD and what were the big findings um, that came from that? Yeah, for my PhD, I basically continued uh, the same topic I had from my master thesis that was focused on ecology of the Eurasian links. So for my Master thesis, I was looking primarily into predation, especially because Eurasian lynx you know, is very different from the bunny killers we have in North America. Because our lynx is more like ecologically similar to, let's say, a mountain lion or leopard. Mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. mainly hunting the, the ungulates, so prey bigger than itself, in contrast to the other lynx species like Canada lynx and bobcats and, and bear lynx, who usually go for smaller animals. So it started mainly like with this relationship between the lynx and the roe deer, which is the main prey species here in, in Europe. And then for PhD, I kind of extended that to interaction with other animals. Uh, so not just prey species, but also the competitors. And actually, the most interesting finding that in the end came out was the uh, interactions between the lynx and the brown bear. Um, oh. So our, uh, our, our version of grizzly bear. And because it turned out that actually there's very effective scavengers, the bears. So they are able to find a lot of prey remains of the lynx. 
because when you know lynx is not a huge animal it's around 20 25 kilos so when it kills the roe deer it's about the same size and because of this it usually takes four days for the lynx to consume the the whole deer and in these four days it often happens that you know bear would come by and and steal the the, the carcass from the lynx so this was the interaction actually we were we were looking in wow and when you say that just studying north american species so much you're i definitely hear a lot of similarities with like mountain lions role in you know the the rocky wall they're everywhere they used to be everywhere and like the rocky mountain ecosystem and how a lot of their prey you know they, they store caches and then they're stolen and bears are definitely a big you know kleptoparasite for that so wow are you still doing work between brown bears and eurasian lynx or how how's that going yeah, we were, so for my PhD, we were just looking like in the basics, you know, like what proportion are taken. We saw that actually it's surprisingly high. Mm. I mean, it's not, it's not surprising in a way because we do have the highest density of brown bear in Europe and one of the highest in, in, the, in the world. So it's kind of not surprising, but still we we're a bit amazed when we saw that actually one out of three kills from the lynx are taken by the bear. Wow, um, one out of three. Yeah, it was, and then... It was not, this is just the average. In some seasons, especially when bears are most active, like when they come out of the den uh, in spring and in the beginning of summer when they're mating, uh, they are losing yeah, even more, like could be even 50% or more of the carcasses. So that was the first part. And then we continued with this a bit because we're interested how, what is then the role of people, how mm. they influence this interaction, mainly because, you know, similar like in North America, the bears are one of the most managed species you know they are uh, because there's under strong pressure of you know culling there's a lot of hunting of bears at the same time there's a lot of uh, at least in europe we have a lot of artificial feeding it's kind of similar like like black bears in north america we also mm. hunters put you know these huge amounts of corn and other foods to track them so it's similar here so you have this intensively managed species the bear and then lynx is taking a lot of consequences of this intensive management because typically, you know, bear managers, what they see is the bear. They rarely see much beyond that, you know. Right. Uh, so nobody, nobody's thinking about, you know, how the bear then interacts with, with the wolf or the lynx or the other species uh, when they're putting out all these, you know, huge amounts of corn and, and they're hunting, translocating bears and so on. So we were kind of interested how this human influence is then what impact this has on the interaction between the bear and the lynx. And we actually show it's, 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 it's very strong. Yeah, it's, it's quite an important predictor of what will happen to the lynx is how the bear is managed in, in certain area or how, how it used to be managed historically. So for example, one, one thing that we really noticed is that if you're close to the artificial feeding site for a bear, not surprisingly, the chances that lynx will lose its kill are much higher than if it's further mm. away. And because we have just, you know, very high density of these feeding sites, again, it's something similar, I guess, than with black bears in, in US, we have one feeding site every three square kilometers. Three uh, square like kilometers? Yeah, it's like, wow. you know, thousands of them, basically. And huge amount, huh? like the, they're about, I think, the estimate was 40 tons of corn per average bear home range is put into the forest. Uh, so it's a it's a huge amount of you know this anthropogenic food, and we see that also in our bears. There, like you know, one third of all the diet comes from from, from this human source. 
So what we are looking now at the moment, we still continue actually this research as a PhD student who is looking now into our, you know, did links figure this out? So did they understand that making a kill close to the feeding site for a bear actually increased the chances of kleptoparasitism? And yeah, I mean, analysis is still in progress, but what I can tell you, it seems that the experienced links, so links have been staying at least one year in certain territory after mm -hmm. they were, you know, you know, born or dispersed or translocated, whatever. Uh, so these experienced links, they seem to be avoiding actually the, the these feeding sites. While the non-experienced links, so the ones that, you know, recently came to a certain area, they don't know where these feeding sites are yet. There we don't see so much avoidance. So yeah, we kind of keep. It's one of the of the of the storyline with research lines that uh, we keep looking into it because it's yeah quite interesting and seems to be logically quite quite important here. Wow! And just for and, context, uh, what is the what is the kill rate for Eurasian lynx? Like, how successful are they when they go on hunts? Well, for the ungulates, which is the main food source, they usually kill a deer, let's say, once every five days. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, oh, everything generally is very similar to mountain lion ecology, you know, like the killer rates, what kind of prey they take, this interaction with bears. This is also why we have a lot of collaboration with, uh, you know, with colleagues from the from US and Canada, uh, mm. because they're just, you know, okay, it's a different species, but ecologically, behaviorally, is really, really similar. And yeah, but that's also kind of a problem for the lynx, because on average, it needs two to three days to make to make a new kill after it abandons the previous one. The problem is that it doesn't have enough time to compensate for all the losses from the bears, right? Mm. Because like I said, one third of the kills are taken by the bears. And we actually, we saw that the lynx do respond. They kill more deer because of that to kind of compensate for these losses. So in our study area, for example, they're killing about 25% more of the deer because of the, of, of the bears. But they just don't have enough time to actually compensate all the losses. So only about 60% of these losses are compensated. And the other one is basically pure energetic loss for, for these animals. Wow. And are you seeing a decrease in lynx population or are they being seasoned enough to just start to avoid the bears or if like the population of bears is that high? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of layers to this. I guess, how is the lynx faring and all of that? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's really hard to tease apart, you know, like what is affecting what. So. Generally, we can say that our lynx are in very bad shape, mm. uh, but this is not because of the bears. The main reason is the inbreeding, uh, mm. because our, our population was completely exterminated about 100 years ago, and then was reintroduced in the 1970s. But uh, only six animals were released, in what was thought to be just a first stage of the, of the reintroduction program. But then second stage never followed. Like the entire population oh. we have now, uh, I mean, it was very successful in the beginning. It spread like, you know, to neighboring countries like Croatia, Bosnia, a uh, little bit Italy and Austria, uh, but it never got in contact with any other neighboring lynx populations, right? So all the lynx today are descendants of those six animals, among Oof. which we know, we know there was mother and son and probably also brother and sister. So all of them oh. were related in the beginning. Uh, so we have just this incredibly high inbreeding rate. I mean, it's even higher than Florida panther. Uh, probably know them wow. there. You know, they also very. So we, I mean, we're getting a lot of you know deformations. Like we had a lot of heart failures. You know, last year we we lost one lynx when he went to autopsy. 
it was like a you know a huge hole in his heart uh like between the left and right atrium with a lot of skeletal formations there was one interesting case you know the links they have these ear tufts on the on the ears like mm -hmm. like another links so we had this this inbred animal who had two ear tufts on the same ear oh my gosh you know, <laughs> like so it's, it's really weird yeah so and this is the main reason why where there was quite a quite drastic decline let's say in the last 20 years but we already see quite a lot of improvement now because since 2017 and there's a big uh, life project life is this financing program of the european union it's a huge project when we are reinforcing this population so we are bringing ideas to include somewhere between uh, 15 to 20 links from another population from the carpathians and we are translocating them here to reduce the inbreeding level I guess you you also spoke with Vedran about about this. Yeah, uh, I was actually simple. going to bring that up. I was like, so you and Vedran work together, and if you wouldn't if you wouldn't mind talking about that collaboration too, to hear both sides of the political divide on this, like literally, like <laughs> yeah, right. it'd be yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's the same project, and yeah, actually we both started about the same year. There was a previous links project called Dinaris, starting from two thousand six. And I think actually for both of us, this was our first professional job as a wildlife researchers. Oh, wow. uh, we are both yeah, we are both hired as basically field technicians at the time. So we were main, you know, field researchers here on Croatian side and me on Slovenian side. So yeah, we were in contact a lot and he's a really nice guy. I really enjoyed working with him. We don't collaborate much in the field, unfortunately, in the last years, but we had some good time in the first project. And now we are, we kind of work together both on each side of the border yeah, to help this lynx population, which is, yeah, our geneticists, they were forecasting that probably in 10 to 20 years, it would go completely extinct. Wow. But now with, with these translocations, it seems that it's really helping them. I mean, really see they bounce back this new generation of lynx. So they're mating with the local ones, these translocated ones. Mm -hmm. So this first generation hybrid seem to be quite much more healthy. We don't, we, so far we didn't see any like health issues among them. and. Also, just population numbers are, are growing. So we have quite big hopes for the future now. Yeah, it seems it will be, they will make it so. Good. But still, yeah, coming back to this bear question, we're not sure actually if perhaps bears also, also contributed to this decline. We know for some other research, let's say from interaction between leopards and hyenas, that kleptoparasism, so stealing of food, can actually influence the reproductive success of the predator. And especially since we are seeing this peak in losses to the bears in the uh, in the summer period and and late spring. This is the period when the lynx are giving giving birth, and then also mm. females are lactating. So I think I think it's actually a good chance that they might the bear kleptoparasis might be affecting the the reproductive success. But uh, yeah, at the moment we don't have enough data to to actually test this assumption. But I think it's quite quite reasonable to expect it. And then big question, of course, in this context also, you know, are these bear densities we have at the moment, are they, you know, even higher than what would be a natural bear density here? Mm. Because we know that, you know, brown bears and Eurasian lynx, they coexisted in Europe for, you know, tens of thousands of years. I guess lynx is adapted to them to a certain extent. But I think there's actually a good, good chance that the bear numbers we have at the moment are even higher than what would be naturally in this landscape, primarily because of this very intensive artificial feeding. So then it's a, it's a question you know, to you know, how high density these links can actually tolerate. Wow. Yeah. And that would make sense. And I guess to not completely steal the show away from the links and talk about bears. I, I mean, how do you 
how do you figure that out if you're like if you're like you know a lynx conservationist and you're like actually we have a massive bear problem and then maybe bear conservationists are like this is awesome and then maybe bear hunters would be like well we would be happy to help with this situation so well, i guess what's the management from this are you guys just waiting to see what the data says or are things already in motion or what do you do with these high bear populations that might not be natural yeah, it's, it's quite complex and also very controversial right. in our country uh, because you have all these sorts of interests. Yeah, like I said, there's like hunters. They generally, they would prefer less bears because, right. you know, they also got some all sorts of problems. And then sometimes you have, you know, ecotourism workers who, you know, super high bear density is great for them because, you know, it's easier to show show the bears to the to the tourists and you know it's a, becoming a big business here to 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 come and see bears mm. and they're usually seeing them at the artificial fitting sites because it's the easiest way how to see them uh so it's also a bit controversial yeah and of course then you have then you have all these you know conflicts between local communities and bears you know they come to villages they you know store the garbage cans they kill the sheep they take, take down the you know fruit trees and so on so yeah it's, it's quite a complex Generally, I mean, there is a management plan or management goal is to actually reduce the bear population, at least in the in the core area in the Narek Mountains. There's idea to increase it in the Alps because there's much, much less bears there. Mm -hmm. But in the core population, the idea is to reduce it. But it's been actually very hard to fulfill in the last years because the before it was mainly depending on the on hunting. On There was quite intensive culling. We have the highest culling rates of, I think, worldwide even of the bears. About 20% oh, wow. of bears are shot. But in the last years, there was a lot of very active uh, NGOs who were going to court and actually managing to stop the calls. So, yeah, then for managers, it was even more difficult, you know, to reach a certain population level uh, because they were kind of limited in, you know, they made, came up with the quota, how many bears should be shot. And they do, could fulfill only, I don't know, 40% of it. And then the court stops it. And the next year they put a new quota and court stop it, stops it again. Now last year court allowed it. So yeah, it's, you know, even if they there is would be a clear management decision, very good management goal, I think it would be very hard to reach just because of all this, you know, sort of interest that they're pushing in, in different directions. Oh, yeah. And uh, sitting down with Natasha Babic, like she informed us on the show that for those of us that might be used of bear populations in other locations, like moving, like translocating <coughs> bears is really difficult. It's not done it just because she's like a lot of them just come back. We don't have the same amount of land as like, you know, the U.S. and Africa and all these other places that maybe translocations work a little better on. So because maybe, you know, the first thought is like, oh, we'll just take the surplus bears and go put them on the Alps. But it doesn't seem to be that easy. Is that also what you're uh, seeing on your side? Yeah, I mean, there are even much stronger other controversies about these translocations. One is that simply it's not really effective because, you know, bears are very good in coming back. Yeah. And then the other problem is if you have like a special, if it's a problem bear, like, a, you mm. know, bear that lost fear of people and they're making a lot of problems, where, where do you put it? I mean, it's Europe. You don't have like huge, you know, huge forests. Okay, let's say there's a general plan in the Alps. We'd like to have more bears, but, you know, nobody there wants a problem bear. So right. nobody, and even generally, you know, people, okay, they would maybe tolerate if the bear comes there naturally, but to do all these releases, I'm quite sure there will be quite strong opposition among the local communities, you know, because still the bear was not present there for many years and 
people kind of uh, you know forgot how to live with the bear you know in contrast to generic mountains were never bears never got extinct so it's a big problem i mean slovenia is always saying you know whoever wants in europe our bears we're happy to export several you know even <laughs> hundreds, <laughs> hundreds per year but you know there's just not enough you know a lot of capacity in europe to to retake bears especially areas that didn't have bears for for decades because i think there is a very slow process and you have to start with small number of animals so that people get used to them and you cannot just dump 100 bears in holland or whatever right so, <laughs> at the same time you know we have this very intensive calling so we are anyway shooting you know 200 bears plus minus in in our country so generally it was it was the policy that you know you either shoot the problem bear and this bear goes into the quota and you rather not shoot than one of the let's say well-behaving bears right so because for this reason there was not much translocation here if there was like a problem bear they usually just shoot him and he would be part of the quota when you have you know people everywhere and a lot of people and just small pockets of forest left then it's really hard to manage with species like a like a brown bear yeah yeah, that sounds crazy difficult. I mean, because your focus is the Eurasian lynx. And now you're like, now I'm dealing with bears. And then also I was just poking around your research gate. And I saw this headline or this paper that you published, I think it was in October about it said golden jackal as a new kleptoparasite for Eurasian lynx in Europe. So there's a new thing now for the lynx? <laughs> golden jackals? Is that new or just new to science? Or what's the what's the story behind that? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting story, actually. It's one of the most dramatic changes we are seeing in carnivore world in Europe oh, in the wow. last few decades. Is, is definitely a jackal. Golden jackal is kind of a, it's basically a counterpart of, of a coyote you have in North America. Mm -hmm. And similar like coyotes were spreading in some parts of, the, of, the, of North America. It's like, yeah, similar to expansion of golden jackal, but maybe let's say, you know, times 10 or times, times 100 even, because the historically... Golden jackal was very limited in Europe. It was present for at least centuries, but probably millennia. It was basically limited to the fringes of Europe, especially the coastlines and islands of the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea, so Southeast Europe, like I said, yeah, at least for centuries. And then suddenly, towards the end of the 19th century, it started expanding. Mm. And especially after Second World War, it's just like a boom. It's like it's, it's it's crazy. Like it's exponentially increasing. For example, it had it was probably I will guesstimate a bit, but maybe we had like you know few hundreds of jackals stop, and now suddenly we have over one hundred thousand, maybe coming Whoa. close to the half a million. Yeah, it's just crazy how 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 it's basically exploded. It's it's showing kind of its characteristics. What you expect from the you know invasive alien species that comes to a new place and just mm. starts spreading like crazy. And we're seeing, and this is like a native carnivore here, you know, nobody brought it here. So, of course, there was a big question what triggered this massive response. So, from basically really limited to these fringes of Europe for centuries, and then suddenly it's like all over the place. We have now jackals all the way to the tip of Norway. You know, there are now four jackals in France, you know, Germany, the whole central Europe is full of them, Pannonian Basin, like they really spread a lot. And when we're looking into the potential changes that happen in Europe, uh, that would allow jackal to spread it all points in the same direction and this seems to be the wolf the gray wolf mm -hmm. uh, or more precisely lack of wolf because in the same period actually when when jackals start spreading this time that wolves became really heavily persecuted throughout europe 
and we actually exterminated most of the wolf populations here. They just survived, especially, let's say, after the Second World War. They were limited to just these most remote forested, you know, mountains of Europe, but from everywhere, from the lowlands and large part of Europe was without wolves. And this is what it seems to enable jackal to really start spreading. So it's a, it's a similar story. Like we know with coyotes also, you know, they're spreading right. to areas when the wolves were exterminated, like, you know, especially the East Coast, uh, also like Labrador, you know, even places where probably there were no coyotes historically, but after wolves were exterminated, this kind of enabled them to spread there. And it seems similar process just on a much bigger scale is happening in Europe with the golden jackal. Yeah, of course. And one of the questions is what are these jackals bringing? You know, this, we don't call it alien species because, you know, it's native and it's spreading on its own. It's not that people were moving it, but still it's a new species. A species that was not present in Europe, you know, ever. So the question is then also what, what are these animals bringing? So what, how they will change the ecosystems because they are, you know, can be very effective scavengers. They are also in you know, a predator of many rodents, but they also go for young or even adult ungulates. So we don't really know what's, what's coming with them. And one of the first cases actually that what we observed is that similar to the brown bear, they also start showing up at the lynx kills oh. and kept present on the lynx kills. So, I mean, I don't expect it will ever be as intensive as with the brown bear, but still it's kind of an interesting phenomenon to follow, you know, how, how these new, new, new species showed up and it's now interacting with species like lynx you know, relying on their food. Interesting actually what we're seeing now is because lynx, overlaps a lot in their distribution with the wolf because they both survived in these more remote you know mountainous forest areas and because still wolf has a major impact on the jackal distribution is just a recent paper we're we're now submitting where we tested like different parameters that affects the presence of jackal in europe and actually the stable wolf pack is number one reason why there'll be like you know uh, affecting probability of, of jackal present and because the wolves, they overlap with lynx, it seems that actually wolves as kind of a protection from the jackal for the lynx. Wow. So, you know, I usually think about lynx and wolves as competitors, you know, right. and they, they don't see that they would, you know, really be friends. But in this interaction, when I have this now third species now coming in, uh, the jackal, they actually seems to be, you know, enemy of your enemies, friends. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> common enemy. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, between wolves, wolves and lynx, actually, we don't see that much negative interactions. Uh, they definitely they compete for the same prey species, but, you know, we don't see much kleptoparasism. Mm. We didn't see, we didn't find any case of like wolves killing lynx and stuff like that. Perhaps the, the wolves can in the end actually be a good guy for the lynx because they will prevent, you know, jackal from jackals coming over. Because the problem with jackal is, in a way, they can attain very high densities. Mm. So basically, in one territory of one wolf pack, you can easily have, you know, 50 or maybe even 100 jackal territories. Whoa. Uh, because they have Whoa. much, much smaller territories. Yeah. And so they have much, much higher densities. So, you know, you can imagine even, let's say, one wolf will take, I don't know, let's say five kills from lynx per year, you know, because they have mm -hmm. so much jackals. Even if one jackal would take, you know, not even a single kill every year. There are so many jackals in the, end, in the end, they will still take much more kills from the lynx than, than let's say the wolf. So it's potentially it could be it could be a big factor. Although there is a one big difference, let's say, especially if we compare it with the brown bear, is that lynx very likely can defend the kill from the jackal. Oh uh, yeah. At least at, or at least it's with one jackal. We're not sure what happens when there's a you know there's a, like a whole family of jackals, a whole pack. But at least against one 
you know, it's a cat and, you know, you don't want to mess <laughs> with a cat, especially if it's bigger than you. Uh, right. While against bear, lynx doesn't have a chance. I mean, you know, just the, the size difference just too big. So there's no way that lynx would defend it against against the bear. So that's another aspect that we'll have to see. We have to follow in the future to see how, how this interaction establishes itself. Wow. I am so glad I looked that up because after how many carnivore experts I've now sat down with across Europe, somehow golden jackals have not been brought up. I mean, he even sat down with, you know, Valeria Salvatore, who's an amazing wolf researcher, and jackals weren't brought up in that conversation either. I mean, I didn't know to ask about it until I saw your paper, but wow, maybe 100,000 jackals? That's that's crazy. I had no clue. <laughs> yeah, it's much more, much more than wolves. And yeah, it's it's a topic that's always been underrated or researcher. I mean, it was definitely an understudied species uh-huh. until I would say maybe 10 years ago. But now in the last 10 years, especially you know, since it's showing up in places like Germany and, and Poland, Denmark and Scandinavia, now it's picking up. Now we say sometimes we joke that number of jackal papers are increasing almost with the same rate as the jackal numbers in Europe. Which, which is too cool. I mean, we were definitely learning a lot because still so much to, to learn about these species. Yeah, it's a definitely interesting topic because, you know, just so dramatic what's, what's happening. We, we didn't see any, any similar thing with other native species here. Wow, well, definitely. You'll have to come on in a future episode and give us an update on all of this stuff because we still have some more areas that we need to travel to. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to keep asking and going down this rabbit hole, but we still have some other areas we need to get to. So let's go ahead and continue traveling around the world. So you've done a lot of work in Namibia. I love Namibia. I dream about going back all the time. And I also have found when I was there that the country is unique in a lot of ways in how it manages land and wildlife. So how exactly did you get from your area in Europe and studying the Eurasian lynx and then traveling all the way south to Namibia? So what was that transition that brought you to Africa? And then what did you end up studying and what species of cat and I guess everything? What was the project? Yeah, one word, I guess you can say I got lucky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 always, I always had this great wish of going to Africa, like especially in high school, you know, I was reading this, you know, uh, magazines about African big cats and uh, watching documentaries. And I really set myself as a goal that until the end of my uh, graduation, I would go to Africa. That was like my, you know, number one goal, let's say, at the time. And I start, started saving money already in, in high school for this and then throughout the college. But towards the end, I only managed to get enough money for the flight ticket. But then I was looking out, you know, probably need the same amount of money to go to, you know, just to go to some safari or something. So I already gave up and said, okay, when I get a proper job, you know, I, I'll do it. But then luckily in my last year at university, I, I happened to be on summer school in Poland. I met this German guy and we come out during this summer school, we, we became kind of friends there. And then I told him about his wish about going to Africa and stuff. And then he said, well, but I'm just, you know, starting PhD in Namibia on cheetahs. And actually I'd be looking for a volunteer for like field assistant to help me. And yeah, we can cover the cost there as long as you show up there. You know, if you have money to come to buy a flight ticket, uh, we can then, you know, cover the other cost. And it was like perfect for me. I, I just wow. had money for that. <laughs> yeah. So I could go there and then like, for me, it was like, you know, experience of a lifetime, definitely. You know, right. just, uh, as a student, I was always dreaming, you know, I went there for three months 
you know, just helping with the field work, capturing cheetahs, putting colors on them, and then tracking them. It was just really like a dream coming true. And afterwards, we stayed in, I mean, we're still good friends today. His name is Jörg Metzheimer. He works at the ICW in Germany. And yeah, and we keep collaborating. Afterwards, they actually, they offered me a job to, to be employed for them after, after this volunteering, but I just got this Lynx project starting here, so I couldn't go. But we kept the idea, and then in 2014, I went back and we started also a parallel leopard project because for me it was always, I mean, it was really nice capturing this cheetah. It was a really amazing, amazing project with, with great insights. But from time to time, you know, you catch leopard as a bycatch in a, in a trap for a cheetah. And this something that really fascinated me and I was dreaming like to, to work with leopards. And because then in the like 10 years ago, there was already the farmers that start saying, yeah, you know, we, we see that cheetahs are kind of declining. But at the same time, we have this increasing leopard population. And actually, the main conflicts with the farmers starting to be the leopards, not so much the cheetah anymore. So this when with York, we kind of constructed this small project inside the cheetah project, which will be focused on the leopards and special interactions between the cheetahs and the leopards to see something, something happening there. So this is how we start with the, with the leopards. That's 2014, and we keep working. We have another project now, which is finishing. And then last year, ICW also get uh, another major funding for to work on uh, on vultures and lions. So I also got opportunity to get involved with the with the lion work now, which was another kind of a yeah dream for myself to yeah. to eventually get. You know, always had in this mind that okay, I want to end up like in working with lions. It was like yeah, since high school, the most fascinating maybe animal for my, for me. But I didn't want also to achieve it too fast, you know, because I was kind of a, you know, what's then left in life, you know, after you work with right. lions. So, <laughs> uh, but let's say that's a good point now in, in career to, you know, to reach that point. So last year we started with this, with this big, big project of, of lions in Etosha. And now we are working with all, all these uh, three species and also interactions among them. Well, what are you f- discovering? Like, like I said, I've been there. I've been to Etosha. I've seen the lions. I've seen wild cheetahs across Namibia. And yeah, I guess... What what is the research? Is there a particular conservation question that you're looking to answer, or what was going on with the leopards? Why were their populations increasing, and did you actually find that? What did your work show you, or is showing you currently about what's going on with the big cats there? Yeah, so I mean, for a long time, our main study area was actually not a national park. This actually this is the only place where we work with lions because lions basically got exterminated out much of Namibia, so basically outside of protection areas, because they're really not compatible with 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 livestock production. So wherever there was livestock, the lions usually gone. And this is a very new project. We started working in a national park also with lions. But before, for the past 20 years, we are focusing on the farmland. So outside national park, because that's actually the area where we have the largest cheetah populations in the world at the moment. We actually have higher density of cheetahs in the farmlands than in the national park, probably because it's actually the lions and spotted hyenas who suppress a lot the cheetah. So it mm-hmm. seems that for cheetahs, maybe actually even better that there are no lions, you know, they're exterminated. Right. <laughs> even even though even though that also themselves got get shot, you know, by, by farmers occasionally. Uh, but still yeah, it's just the fact that you have much more cheetahs in the farmlands at the moment. Also because you know farmlands are much more extensive than than any national park. And yeah, maybe one of the most Fascinating things uh, that come out with the with the cheetah project. It's really a long term project. It's now running for more than twenty years. Is that in contrast to most other cats, most other cat species, uh, what was observed that their territorial system 
is really untypical. So usually, let's say with leopards and tigers, you know, lynx, are most of the cats, usually have one territory finishing and then immediately you get a start of the next one. So they kind of are neighbors, you know, neighboring males, they're, they're touching in their, home, in their home ranges or even overlapping a bit. But this seems not to be the case with the cheetah. We're still not really sure why, but there's kind of a between the territories of the males, you have kind of a no man's land. And surprisingly, it's always constant distance. It's like roughly 20 to 25 kilometers between oh, these territories. Oh, good ways. Centers. Yeah, and nobody really knows why this, you know, 2025. And it, even in, let's say, in Serengeti, it seems to be for the available there. Uh, York was looking to it. He actually sees that it, it seems to be the same distance. And so that was already very interesting to, to discover, you know, this kind of atypical racial social organization. But the next step was we were thinking, okay, how can we use this to help mitigating the conflict? Because, I mean, conflict was quite a serious one. So on one side, you have, you know, farmers who are losing a lot of livestock. So it can even, you know, it can be risky for their livelihoods. And on the other hand, you have a lot of retaliatory killings because, you know, some farmers will protect their livestock by, by shooting the cheetah. So what we looked in is, let's say, I mean, the farms are pretty large there. So it's typically like 50 or maybe even 200 square kilometers. And if you know which part of your farm is, we call it cheetah hotspot or a communication hub, mm -hmm. uh, and which area is kind of a no man's land where you only have the females and occasional, you know, non-territorial male, then we assumed, okay, probably the chances of livestock attacks it's much higher in these hotspots when you have high chicken activity compared to this no man's land. Or well, we just we already established collaborations with many farmers where we had cheetahs on color. So we can actually say, okay, look, this part of the farm is the hotspot. Why don't you move your herds with calves? Because with cheetahs, usually the calves, only the young cattle that gets attacked. Adult cattle is very rarely targeted by cheetah. Makes sense. So it's a little big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so say, look, you know, just move the herds with the with the sucklers with the with the small calves into that part of the farm when it's no man's land for cheetah mm. uh, and let's see what happens and we got several farmers who did that for a couple of years and the damages they they experienced by the cheetahs went down 86 percent 86 percent it was amazing so it was like you know the most effective thing that you know people came up so far how to reduce damages caused by cheetahs you know, in a very wow. simple way, Nay. You know, just knowing, okay, this area is territory, this one is, is no man's land, and, and they would move, and it worked perfectly. So for me, that was, yeah, probably one of the most satisfying, you know, research projects I, I, I had the chance to be part of, because not just that we got this insight into the ecology of this animal that was not really studied before, uh, but also it can actually have very, you know, concrete conservation implication out of it. That's <laughs> incredible. I don't know if I've ever heard statistics like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, numbers that high just by using and understanding and knowing what these cats do reducing conflict by that much that is I, that might be the biggest like success story that i've ever heard and then what about the yeah. leopards what was what was what was going on with them yeah well interesting thing we start observing i mean generally they are quite you know typical valid when it comes to you know, this spatial organization, there were no big surprises like with cheetahs. But the big surprise that came out was when we started putting camera traps on their fresh kills. It was not done much before, but uh, we were doing this for a long time on links here. 
because we got you know all these insights as with bear clap the precision stuff we relied a lot on camera traps so actually it started as you know let's look how 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 it does work with these scavengers on the leopards let's put some car, uh, some cameras out there we start we start doing that and the very interesting thing that kind of start we started observing is that you know you had leopard with the with the gps color it's very easy to find the kill site uh, same as with links or with you know mountain line because they just stop moving when they make a big kill right usually they're there like for three four days so you can see you know it's so obvious when you see the data you know they stop moving okay they must have they must have got something so we are we are going there so let's say we have this you know colored leopard we find the kill we put the camera and then we start seeing that you know these kills there's a lot of other leopards showing up without colors and like surprisingly lot, but still the sample size is quite small so two years ago we now started with the project actually focused on this let's see how much of this pressuring seems to be going on we really focused now last two years on putting more cameras out and we found out that one out of three cues of leopards are shared between several of them shared i well, mean just like shared not necessarily at the same time but you know this one right. leopard feeding then you know another one comes and then two hours later the first one comes back and we are not sure you now how peaceful this sharing is, but you know we are not seeing actually any fights. And sometimes they, we see two leopards at the same time there. But what is most fascinating is just this super high number, you know, because there are not many leopards, you know, they're territorial. Right. So typically right. you have one female and one male and maybe some sub-adults in the area. And just by, you know, leopards moving around, you would really not expect that they would find so many kills, you know, randomly, just coincidentally uh, while walking around. So it seems there must be something going on there, some kind of, a, you know, they they are much more social than what we're thinking so far. Um, oh so my gosh! For me, that was very fascinating, and it's very interesting because again, it's a it's a parallel with the mountain lion research in, in North America. Because in I think it was in in Grand Tetons in Wyoming, they discovered exactly the same thing with with the mountain lions. There's a lot of pressuring among the among the mountain lions there, but also the proportion. And even more fascinating, they discovered that it seems to be reciprocal. So let's say, mm. you know, Puma A will be sharing with Puma B. Then also Puma B will be sharing with Puma A, but not with Puma C, because let's say Puma C doesn't want to share with others. Oh, uh, you scratch my and, back, I'll scratch yours. <laughs> yeah, um, and I mean, I think it might be some actually good strategy in a way, you know, because if you're just unlucky in, in hunting last few weeks, it's nice that, you know, you can share with someone who help you out when you, you know, when you get, don't get mad so much. And then, you know, when you're lucky with hunting, you can again share with someone with another one. So it's, yeah, but it is very new. Just, you know, we are getting the first insights into this. So this was just the first study on leopards. It's not, it's not even published yet. And the mountain lion work also just came out a few years ago. But yeah, I mean, definitely there's much more there than what we imagined before. And this, Solitary species seems to be much more social that, you know, even though they don't walk around so much together at the same time, it seems that still they are, you know, they're always in contact. They know about each other. And it was even like a fascinating research. I just read a paper the other day, uh, was just published from, from South America on jaguars. Mm-hmm. They actually they, they observed that there are sometimes jaguar males, they make coalitions and they even walk oh. around like together. Yeah. Like really? something, something that's it's known for, for cheetahs, for example. Right. Uh, males are uh, usually they make coalitions usually it's brothers but not necessarily and it seems actually that for jaguars it would be similar and you know new but nobody knew about this until yeah last year basically when this paper got published so it's uh yeah this solitary 
animals are, I think it's really interesting subject to study because yeah, there's much there that we just couldn't understand before. Also right. because of techno technological limitations, you know, we just, it's very hard to study <laughs> yeah. them because you, you never see them, you know, so. Absolutely. And I, I, that is really fascinating. And again, another topic that as your research develops, we'll have to have you back on to do all the updates. But even when I was in Nepal, oh God, when was that? I guess I'm already losing track of time. It was uh, March 2021. <laughs> I'm losing track of time. I was with a lot of tiger researchers there and they were also saying very similar things that they're seeing social behaviors of tigers that they that no one really knew was a thing before then. I mean, granted, they have a really high population of tigers now. And so it seems that just like you said, as technology advances in the research field, we're starting to understand that cats aren't as solitary as we've previously thought. And I didn't know that about jaguars. And and uh, gosh, it's I mean, maybe honestly, they're going to be way more social across the board than we ever thought. And yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, really interested to hear what your research says about leopards, too. Yeah, and, and it really seems not to be, you know, kind of a, because when this first paper on, on mountain lions came out, we thought, oh, this is like really super fascinating. But maybe it's, you know, peculiar thing about mountain lions, like, you know, what we discovered, let's say, for cheetahs. But no, no, it's definitely it's leopards, probably also jaguars. And I believe it could be the same case with snow leopards. Uh, mm, we only mm -hmm. so far managed to put one camera trap out there on the on the fresh cure from snow leopard. But on this one, we got two leopards with snow, two snow leopards fitting on it. So it's, oh. you know, I'm, sh I'm sure there are many other, you know, cats that are sharing this. We're seeing also with lynx occasionally, but lynx seems to be much less than, let's say, with leopards. But, are you also uh, doing like genetic studies? Because I'm trying to think like if there's like a family component. I mean, that's a whole other level, like being able to collect scat or an actual like live sample. Yeah, yeah. That, that was my guess also in the beginning that it would be, you know, like sharing with your family because yeah. kind of, uh, you, know, you improve your fitness. But uh, at least the study on mountain lions showed it's not related with kinship. Mm. That uh, It doesn't really explain it, you know, if you'll be sharing with another one or not. So, But we don't know for any other species. It was never tested let's say for leopards or, or, or any, any other. I love that there's still questions that we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> when I feel like it's much more exciting. <laughs> yes, I mean, especially you, where you've dedicated your whole life to this, and and I sit down with people like you that do this stuff, and and I'm a big cat, you know, enthusiast and and advocate and stuff like that. So to know that we're still we still have so much to learn, gosh. <laughs> like I said, this is just going to be part one of, I'm sure, many parts <laughs> with me, because we're not we yeah. we haven't even finished yet now. Let's hop again. Let's hop across the globe again to Asia. And tell me, how exactly did you get to spend time or researching or whatever you want to call it with Sumatran tigers and clouded leopards in Borneo? I mean, those are two very specific and special species. And I've actually not had anybody on the show that has worked with either of these species. So could you teach us maybe a little bit more about them? And then how did you start to work with these very specific cats? It would be great. Yeah, well, actually, to be honest with you, I don't have that much experience with either, either tigers or, or, uh, or cloud leopards. It was more kind of a, another, let's say, lucky situation or coincidence that there was a good friend of mine who we worked together on, on cheetahs and leopards in, in Namibia. 
he was asked by colleague to come over to Borneo to help them with trapping the the cloud leopards and and the leopard cats. Just yeah, they were a bit struggling with 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 capture success there. So he asked me to join him and we went there for a few weeks. Just yeah, putting some traps out and testing some other capturing techniques and yeah, I guess we also got a bit lucky capturing some some of them. So yeah, but I didn't really spend much time there. It was more kind of a one-time event. And then another uh, another colleague of mine uh, from US, uh, Max Allen, he was involved with with tiger research in in Sumatra. So yeah, we did some papers from from camera trapping data there. But yeah, I really don't consider myself expert on on either of these of these pieces. <laughs> Just uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah. We did work a bit more in Asia, on um, in Mongolia, uh, in the in the Altai Mountains on snow leopards. Yes, please um, actually go into that then, because I am the, the snow leopards are next on my bucket list of animals to go see in the wild. So I could talk about them till I'm blue in the face. So yes, could you please tell us about Mongolian snow leopards? Yeah, <laughs> uh, if you go to see them, then good luck. Yeah, <laughs> they are, I mean, it just they're just so cryptic. It, it's crazy. You, know? you can be like. 50 meters away from them, you stare into them and you just don't see them if they don't move. <laughs> so it's, mm-hmm. they're just, you know, the camouflage. I mean, there are some places when it seems there are, there's a lot of ecotourism going on around them yeah, as well. Yeah, in India, and there's, there's some a, places, there's a lot. Especially in, yeah, in India, this is also the place I heard, that it's actually not so difficult to see them if you really take like, you know, a week and you just spend it, you know, staring through the telescope, especially with some local guide. Uh, I heard several people who went there and yeah, they actually managed to see a snow leopard. Yeah, coming to our work to in, in in Alta, it's also it was focused on camera trapping. It was again a lucky coincidence, let's say, because there was a friend of mine from Italy who was approached by another Italian colleague who is living in Mongolia to initiate the snow leopard project there. I think it's for five. Yeah, no, it's for six years. Uh, oh, wow. we, we've been going there different different places, putting cameras. First aim was just to you know find out how many they are because. With snow leopards, it's a big problem that we don't really have a good estimate about the glo- global population because most of the ranges, they're very remote, so it was never sampled. So all these estimates of populations are coming from, you know, extrapolations from this little study size that, you know, there was some some attempts to estimate their, their density. So we want to increase the number of these sites. So we can have these better overall numbers in the end. In some parts, it was actually quite sad because, you know, it was, it, it was believed to be some of the strongholds for snow leopard in the country, let's say, including Talambok, like the highest, highest, highest peak uh, in the country and so on. And we find out basically snow leopards are almost gone there. Uh, wow. But, but on the other hand, you know, there are some places that still it seems to be like a good population, but it really kind of indicated that, you know, we need more of these field surveys. Because you just cannot extrapolate, you know, knowing what is in one area and you assume that because habitat is similar, you know, it will be similar densities. It can be very, very different. So we really need more of these local estimates to, to come up with a good number. And it was the main thing how it started. But then, of course, when, you know, when you have out a lot of camera traps for a long time, you're getting a lot of data also on the other species. So we're oh, now yeah. also using these data, you know, because no le- leopards, they're so charismatic. It's not that difficult to get funding, you know, to these kind of expeditions. But for some other smaller animals, you know, it's it's really hard to get funding. So we can use then data that are primarily gathered targeting the snow leopard, but any anything that shows up in front of camera trap gets photographed. So right, for example, right. we have now two studies going on in Palace Cat. It's like a small felid 
Uh, there's also these, these remote areas, you know, it will be hard to get, you know, funding for them, but we're just getting a lot of data now from Snow Leopard service. So it's, it's very use, useful by catch, let's say. So another important topic, because we're really seeing that more and more encroachment by the livestock connected primarily with the, with the global cashmere market. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because there's such such a high cashmere demand, you know, globally, and you know, cashmere, it, you only get this kind of fur in in animals that are, that are bred in in, in high altitudes. Uh, there's really like it was like almost exponential increase in number of livestock in this area that used to be very remote, uh, very low low with low productivity, and you can imagine what you know this high density of of sheep and goats does to these mountains when already the grass is is you know is very scarce. So it has strong effect. We 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 observed towards the native ungulates, it's a uh, Siberian ibex, which is also the main wild prey for the snow leopard. So they are avoiding the livestock, the areas when, where they're being encroached by, by these high densities of, of uh, shipping goats. And we also see actually the snow leopards is avoiding these areas. So this seems to be a major conservation issue. There is uh, maybe not so much actually direct killing of the snow leopard, but just basically losing habitat because of this increasing density of livestock. And yeah, and there are also some other interesting insights that we got, for example, some of these sites we're surveying is dominated by the by the Kazakh people. Mm-hmm. Um, and some others are, it's mainly Mongolians. And what we're seeing that where there's mainly the Mongolian ethnicity, that uh, we have much better population of snow leopards and, and also their, their wild prey, even though there's like this livestock encroachment in both areas. But what we are kind of uh, assuming, let's say, is it actually might have to do with uh, with religion? Oh because wow, yeah. Mongolians, I mean Buddhists, and you know Buddhists are you know they're much more tolerant of generally or you know life of of animals much more sacred, while Kazakhs they are they're mainly uh, Muslim, and you know with both Islam and Christianity, this attitude towards animals is you know it's a whole different level than let's say from from the Buddhist or Hindu. So yeah, I mean it's it's quite correlative. You know, observation, but still, uh, this is quite a, quite an indication that you know, in areas with with predominant Buddhism, usually populations of of these animals are are much more vital than uh, than areas with monotheistic religions. Right, right. Actually, I, I'm quite excited you brought that up because I'm currently working on, ironically, getting some Buddhist communities onto the show that work that live in big cat habitat in Nepal. So. I've read papers on this. I've actually wrote a, you know, just like a research paper when I was doing my master's about this, because I had never made that connection coming from a dominantly Christian country that the the way we are raised in our culture can have a big influence on how we treat our wildlife around us. And so that was my first time having this, like making that connection between, because if specifically I was looking at like monasteries and their role in conservation actually was ironically snow leopards at that time. And it was the first time I had, I had put two and two together that this could be a thing. And so the fact that you bring that up, but I mean, to me, it doesn't surprise me, but it's just because I had looked into the literature myself and hopefully I'll be able to then share with everybody, essentially anyone that wants to listen, <laughs> uh, somebody that is a Buddhist that actually and their views of the cats that they live with and the wildlife that they live with and also their concerns for the future. So it's a very interesting topic. It's like another layer to the human wildlife dynamic that 
I think those of us that are just hardcore in research don't really think about until it's kind of brought to us and into our face like it was for me. And then to then go to these other cultures and meet Buddhists and meet Hindus and be like, wow, yeah, you, you just their lives are different. And the way they look at wildlife, it's it's beautiful. It's, it's incredible. Like, I, like I've said in, in earlier episodes when I was all over Nepal, like you don't kill a god like you don't you don't do that, you know. So to see what that influence is, especially with conflict ridden species like snow leopards and, and all these other cats, I think is, is a very interesting dynamic that at least I find really interesting. And so one that I hope is looked into further. And I mean, I know I'm going to, but again, I'm not doing like professional research on it. I'm just sitting down with people with really interesting stories. So I really do appreciate you bringing that up. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's very exciting. I mean, it was, I think, quite below the radar for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the last years, I mean, I saw some pretty fascinating papers yeah, that like made this connection between religion and, and wildlife conservation and yeah, particularly Buddhism and snow leopards. I think there are quite several papers out there. I mean, this is really out of, you know, my uh, my expertise. But yeah, it's definitely because, you know, in the end, when you come to conservation nowadays, it's it's all about people, you know, right. It's uh, I mean, okay, you have to understand the biology and, you know, there are some issues that are, you know, purely biological, let's say like our inbreeding problem with links and so on. But these are, you know, quite exceptional cases. Like vast majority, I think, it's really have to do with the people and, you know, just about how to do with their attitudes, with their values. And of course, religion can be can be important part. Let's say, you know, in Amazonia, for example, you have these river dolphins, right? Right, yeah. uh, and mm -hmm. many of the indigenous communities, you know, they believe their actual reincarnation of their ancestors. Right. So killing dolphin, it's a total taboo. I mean, you just don't don't do it. You know, you don't kill your, yeah, like I said, your gut or, or your ancestor. So you can just imagine what this have, you know, affects the conservation of species. If, you know, it's a taboo to kill a certain animal, then it's almost, you know, the best protection you can, you can afford. So it's definitely an important topic. I mean, even yeah. in the U.S., you know, I heard they're like, you know, some Native American reserves when, you know, the tribes, just because they feel, let's say, this connection, spiritual connection with, with the wolf, let's say, they refuse to, to hunt the wolves, even right. though they were, they were kind of, a, you know, the management plan predicts that. I think it's Wisconsin, uh, somewhere like that. So it's, you know, in our societies, we, we don't think about these topics so, so much, uh, at least in Europe, but it's, yeah, in some other places of the world can be, can be quite important aspect as well in the conservation. Right. Yeah. And, and like I said, I hope it's a topic that I get to explore more on the show and, and also have the opportunity to share with everyone else from from right from the people that that, that is their belief. So I'll keep everyone posted there. So now that we've done this global tour, there's there's a reason why I wanted to do this this big picture. And since you've worked all all across Europe, Asia and Africa, researching and conserving carnivores, have you noticed any commonalities across the globe? And I mean, one, that that's one thing. Are there similarities, you know, just living with carnivores? And at the same time, what are the differences or is it just pretty different case by case <coughs> basis? Yeah. Are there? Yeah. Just maybe just share with us what you've seen and your time around the world. Yeah, maybe the thing I was really fascinated is how similar things are, you know, mm. it's like, okay, there are always some exceptions, but, you know, typically wherever you go, you know, you have people, you have their livestock and you have the predator who is killing the livestock and then you have people killing the predator. You know, that's the main <laughs> theme, let's say, that is really repeated all, you know, over and over, wherever you go, actually, throughout the world. 
And I think especially let's say for people like from Europe, I guess it's similar for North America. I know it's only important to understand this part because at least in Europe, people who think about Africa say, oh, it's not like these huge national parks and there's like wilderness and no people. And yeah, you know, they can conserve predators, you know, but us in Europe, you know, it's so many people, it's so few forests, we, we cannot do it. It's, it's impossible. But then you travel around, you see it's everywhere the same. Okay, you have some areas with big parks, but majority of animals still, they live outside of protected areas. So I really believe that the only way forward, the only solution is actually to learn how to coexist with them. Because this separation model that especially North America and Africa, you know, they're proposing this quite a lot. It's it just play it's it's too small, you know, the, the protected areas are, are are too small and it will never work work out. So we need to learn to live together with these predators, you know, or we're gonna lose it. I think they just it's as simple as that. Yeah. And so for me, like especially like coming back to Europe, then I always try this point that no, I mean, what you see on annual planet. It's not, it's not real life. Real life is, you know, exactly the same as you living here with a bear, you know, around your village. So we, we all have, you know, to do our part if we are to, you know, to conserve biodiversity across the globe. Uh, we cannot leave it to, you know, some remote third world countries to do it for us. Yeah. And then another, I think, quite important topic because it, it often really comes down to, to livestock. And then I think another uh, important topic when it comes down to livestock is that there are ways, there are solutions, you know, how can you have the livestock and the predator in the same landscape? It requires certain effort, certain knowledge, ingenuity, you know, because, you know, there's no silver bullet. One thing works somewhere. Right. Or the other thing, works, you know, like what we learned from, from cheetahs, you know, in Namibia, it would never work for snow leopards in, you know, in Mongolia or, or bears in Europe. But they're, they're usually, if you really, you know, put effort, you know, have a solid research, solid science behind it, you can come up with things that, that work, you know, and you can have these successes because they come from all over the place, you know, from wolves in North America, bears in Europe, cheetahs, leopards in, in Africa. You know, you have these ways when there's a relatively simple solution, not too expensive, and you can reduce the damages never for 100%, of course, but you can reduce them like you know, 70, 80, sometimes 90%. So it's really about, you know, understanding first ecology of these species and then which are the technical solutions that can help you or they don't even have to be very technical, you know, you can just move like Wichita's, you know, right. cattle from one part of the farm to another one. But to find a solution, then you can really reduce a lot these conflicts and life, including livestock depredations. And, you know, people often, you know, many farmers that I speak with, you know, either in Europe, in Africa or, or Mongolia is, I can tolerate some losses. You know, if they, if they take, let's say there was a, a farmer in Namibia who told me that, you know, okay, if leopard takes three or four cows per year, I can live with that. I mean, yeah, it's part of nature. You know, it's, it's kind of a tax for, right. for nature. But I cannot live with leopards taking 20 of my, of my cows because just economically I will not survive anymore. And so it's really, I think, important to bring these damages down to some, you know, lever that people can tolerate. Uh, and then this can be a way to, to coexist. Not always nice. There will always be some blood, you know, on livestock side, on the predator side. But, you know, we have a viable population. and, and and still people living their livelihoods at the same time. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask this particular question is because few of us have the opportunity to see human large carnivore conflict and coexistence on such a scale as you. And so asking that, like, we, we can just get such tunnel vision on just cheetahs in Namibia, and this is what they experience. But you have seen 
people living beside predators on multiple continents and what are the similarities? And of course, things are going to vary by country to country, continent to continent, community to community. But just like you said, there are some commonalities that's just the way of life of living with carnivores. And especially if when they want to eat the thing that you have. So yeah, that that's that's interesting to hear and listen to that there are there, there are some strings that attach all of it together. Yeah, and next I I kind of wanted to shift a little bit to to you personally and your work that you've done abroad. So you have been so many places, most of which you are the foreigner coming into these communities. And just mostly for people listening, like someone wants to go down that path where they're really interested in a species that might not be where they're from. How have you managed that going into these communities and being welcomed? Like, what is the best way to respect people and the way they live? But while also answering these important questions, how have you managed to balance that through your years of work? And has that changed over the years and how you've you've approached this and yeah, just share with us what you've you've experienced in, in your years in the field. Maybe I would highlight two points in this respect. One is like really come there to listen. You know, mm. even if you're you know like to say a carnivore expert, but if you come to a new country, you know the first farmer is going to meet will definitely have much more experience with this predator than you have. Right. Uh, so you definitely have to lose the attitude, you know, of like being like a smart ass carnival searchers come in and tell the people you know yeah just be there and listen and you know you actually get a lot of information not everything is correct but still you can have a lot of ideas you know that you can then later test you know scientifically and the second point is then also connected with this it requires time so you know it really takes because you cannot just show up there and you know People will open to you and they'll be open to your research and you know what what your ideas you want to do. It really takes time to be to spend in the community, you know, go for you know, for beers with the local farmers and right. really, really, you know, really have to put effort. And kind of a let's say easy way how to do it is to get local context. Let's say a local researcher who was working, you know, 20 years in the field with these farmers. You know, this kind of people can get you in very quickly because mm. if you just come there, you know, you would need years to really get, you know, get there. But, you know, if, if somebody brings you in who already has contacts with local farmers who have their trust, then it's much easier also for you, like a newcomer, you know, to, to get involved and really get, get good, good insights. Because, yeah, like I said, okay, in some areas, including my own home country, I've been spending much, many years, but, you know, some places I just go a few times, you know, in my life and, then really having a good local contact researcher there is how to really facilitate these insights you can get from, from the local people and also local animals. I mean, they also, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a field biology who spent less, less 15 years, you know, in the field with this animal, there's no other better person to, to tell you how, you know, to get you all that can be known with current level of technology with, with these species. Yeah, I would say a large part is really this networking. Uh, I have a good international network of people and putting in also a lot of effort, you know, in not just this personal interaction, let's say, that you have with, with, with people in different places. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about who you know. That's one of the biggest tips that I always love to throw out there. It's like, what, who's your network? How strong is your network? And go with, yeah, the local voice, the local person. So that's fantastic advice. And 
continuing on to you, I mean, if anybody looks you up and they see all these incredible things you've done, your name's on so many papers, professor, you know, giving all these talks, they're like, wow, he's done so many crazy things. Like, this is wonderful. But as we all know in this field, there's an unsexy side to all of this. There's a lot of challenges that all of us have to overcome. Is there a particular struggle or challenge that you would be willing to share with us that maybe you've had to overcome that was maybe a hard time during your career so far? Yeah, maybe, you know, having this kind of a career, especially being spread over multiple continents, it can be quite challenging to have a family at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really depends on your uh, on your partner. I guess I've been very lucky in this respect, but still, you know, especially having a young kid, it's you know, you have to make a lot of compromises. So I would say this was maybe a very challenging part. And I would say for me, I guess it was quite a good decision to have to have child quite late. Yeah. Because in other ways, I think I would feel quite frustrated, you know, because especially, you know, when you're young in this, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a wildlife researcher, you don't get many opportunities, right? You're not getting invited, you know, these nice places to, you know, and people showing you around and this exciting research they're doing, you know, really have to fight for every opportunity you get. Right. But then with your, with your career, you're getting more and more contacts and you're getting more and more invitations like this. And so, you know, it can be, I imagine, quite frustrating that you, you know, finally reach kind of a point that you start getting access to these exciting projects and study areas, and you cannot do it anymore because, you know, you want to spend time with your family, right? Right, uh, right. So I think this, at least for me, maybe personally, was was like a major thing that, you know, I'm seeing now that has to be taken into account. And but for me, it's also like, you know, experienced so many things before. It's 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 much easier now to say no to things, you know, even if, even if it's a great opportunity to learn something or go somewhere or get involved in something just because, you know, you experienced a lot of things before, but with the early in career, then yeah, I think at least the type of person as myself would, would really struggle with it or on the other side, the family would, you know, would suffer. Right. And that's, that's, that's been brought up on more than one episode is the, the personal, like personal, personal side of this, of, I know so many people, I mean, me included, who has held off at starting a family and some people might not have them at all. Maybe me included just because the way this life is. And so that is something that anyone listening has to really consider before you start this field or any or any field similar to this is, are you okay holding off on starting a family? What sacrifices are you willing to make now or later? to make your, you know, whatever dreams or passions you have come true. So I can definitely understand and see why that would be a quite a big challenge to, I guess, I could maybe overcome isn't the correct term because you don't overcome being a father, but you know what I mean? Uh, right. Finding balance between <laughs> career and family. It's, it's, it's a big one. And it's one that I think going in, a lot of us don't give enough thought to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it really depends, like I said, on your partner a lot, you know. Yeah. Like the things and what is possible and, you know, how much, you know, just people complicate me about it. Because some partners are very open. You know, you just move for a few months to Namibia, I know. It's, it, you know, it, it's not such a big deal. And, you know, someone just never, you know, commit to that. So it's, uh, yeah, a big issue also that it's hard to plan in advance, let's say, you know, how, how things will go. So sometimes you just get lucky or you don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's that's again, it's also nice to hear the father's side because I've heard had some mothers on that have shared the similar sentiment. So 
I love hearing all voices and all experiences. But yeah, so do you have any upcoming projects that you can share with us? Anything that you can say here or is it all tip top secret or are you just keeping on keeping on or, or what's next for you? Well, maybe there's another downside to this career, I would say. Oh, because, yeah? you know, we all depend on projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in my case, you know, okay, if you're like a stable, you know, if you're like professor's university, okay, have a stable position. But if you are like a full-time researcher like myself and then just do a little bit of teaching, then basically means you have a project, you have a job, you run out of projects, you lose your job. Mm-hmm. And so it's like contract kind work of, uh, almost. Right. Because at least in our case, the university doesn't give you contract beyond the project because right. there's no, you know, funding. And at the moment, actually, we are also struggling a bit because we have these two big projects coming to to the end uh, next year. So one is this big one on links, another one on 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 leopards in um, in Namibia. So actually, we are now in a phase that we are yeah applying for grants, and that's not the nicest part of the of this job. But yeah, we have to do it. I mean, in a way, I would say it can be also satisfying because it's maybe the part that you can be most creative. Because, mm. you know, you can actually come up with, a, you know, with a research problem, with ideas how to solve it. Uh, it has to be very innovative, you know, ingenuine to get, you know, people excited to fund it or have to come up with a good idea to address some management challenge. So it can be also very, you know, creative part, but still, you know, just being stuck behind computer and, you know, fight with these bureaucratic issues uh, that are part of every project application that yeah, people can struggle. But so... At the moment, actually, we are in this kind of this phase, so we don't have any 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 clear project coming up yet. So yeah, we are applying for grants. So not much to share here at the moment, right? <laughs> I guess, I, I, yeah, that that's totally true. Just because people that follow the normal research path are like, I need to get in, I gotta get a postdoc, you know, blah blah blah, be a researcher at a university and going on. But just like you, you said that it's more of an independent body that does this. I, I'm kind of curious myself, how do you then find new projects? Do you, you just start emailing your contacts and like, hey, what are you up to nowadays? Can I help? Do you need help? You know, I guess what is the next step other than applying to grants to maybe continue the work you're already doing? But like, is that how you find new projects or how do you do that? Mm, yeah, it's I mean, continuing like. People do, I mean, the funding, you know, institutions are usually not interested just, you know, that you keep going with the same thing you could be working before. Usually they're looking for something, new things, some novel things. I mean, there are always exceptions, right? But usually the the research grants we're applying for, uh, it has to be something exciting, something new, or that hasn't been done yet. A lot of, you know, groundbreaking potential and things like that. So sometimes, yeah, if someone has to get invited, you know, someone gets a big project and they want you in, you know, like... I got lucky, you know, listened with with this alliance with uh, with the German Institute. But usually, it's more like you're somewhere out there in the field, and you get this really cool idea. What would be really nice to to study, and you see how important it could be, and then you just keep your eyes open for you know open calls for research grants, and you start applying. But yeah, it's usually I would say an average ten to twenty percent success rate. Ooh, so you wow. have to write like five to ten proposals that you get one grant. Yeah, so but brutal. <laughs> yeah. And it depends also on the content, I guess, because in let's say in Europe, it's a lot about the national funding, like government funding. We don't we really don't have much like private funding or let's say funds, uh, I forgot how it's called in US, like you know, for each gunner ammunition that is being sold, 
part of it will go into wildlife research, let's say. So there are these kind of funds yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. that are, you know, come from like private money in a way. So we don't have that much here. It's more, uh, it's more, yeah, national government or European level. Uh, EU also funds quite a lot of science as well. So these are these kind of projects we can go for. And then the other part is the conservation projects. They're usually, they're not interested so much in science. Sometimes actually you shouldn't do it because then you want to get a grant, but you can demonstrate it, you know, something you want to do can have very clear, concrete, conservative, you know, results that, yeah, that you do. And that's another type of grant you can apply for, at least in, 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 our, in our field. For example, um, we've been, yeah. Oh, my experience is actually easier to get this kind of funding. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, let's say, at least in Europe, we have this big financial mechanism by the European Union. It's called LIFE. And they, they fund a lot of these uh, big multi-million projects. Let's say our recent Lynx project was like that. We had a bear and wolf project before. And usually success rate in this is much higher than for pure scientific or basic research projects. That makes sense. And so most of those, at least from my experience, please correct me if I'm wrong or if it's different in Europe, a lot of those are funded through universities. So like people that are actually currently in school or associated with the university in some way, that, at least that seems that what my, most of my network here, that that's how they get funding is like, you know, through the university and they don't get paid much. but at least their work is funded and but those are like like strict research projects so yeah i can see how maybe getting money for those might be harder (laughs) yeah i mean you do get funds through the university but you have to bring your own money into the university it's not like you know Mm. university would have would have a foundation to to finance you so you apply let's say for you through your university for uh for a call research grant that's been you know put out by the the european commission or 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 national research agency, something like that. So it, I mean, it's quite rare that you know university would have some kind of money available directly for for research. Usually, you you just apply for university to to some external funders. Well, yeah. so I guess your next step is up in the air, and like I said, maybe in a year we'll have to sit back down, or once I finally get over to Europe and see all of you in person, we can have an update episode because. Wow, you have so many things we need to uh, keep up to date. You know, what's going on with the links and maybe talk with you in Vajran about that. And then the golden jackals and we need to know what's going on with leopards and snow leopards. And wow, you have so many interesting things. And the lions that just started, like there's just, gosh, I feel like we just scratched the surface of what you've actually worked on and, and what's to come, which is really, really exciting. And if anybody listening, if maybe they want to check in on what your work or maybe read more about what you've published or maybe even contact you, what are some of the best ways for people to do that? Well, for publications, which is usually, you know, a bit boring reading, let's say, in yeah. scientific papers. There is like a research gate is, is one of these, you know, sites when you can get a lot of this information. Otherwise, like for most of the projects we run, we have like a special web pages that people can, can, you know, just Google. And yeah, we also have our own like personal web pages, our university faculty page. We are not that active on, uh, on social media, I would say. Some of my colleagues are a bit more, uh, but I don't even have Facebook. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I mean, my email is also available online. So you can always Google it and, and drop email and we can, you know. They specifically, let's say someone's interested in snow leopards, I can then direct them to, to the web page about snow leopards project and so on. But yeah, it really depends again on the project. Let's say at the moment we have this big links project, 
there's a lot of happening also on social media about the links. It's a very active, you know, web page, project web page. But in two years, when this project will be finished, it will, you know, there won't be much new things going up up there. So it's kind of a, everything's a bit temporary here. Right, right. And of course, and you and I can discuss and I can put any links in the show notes so that people can follow you. I already have your research gate again. That's how I found your golden jackal paper that really is like, whoa, I was like, ah, I need to ask about that. That was not one of my questions originally. I'm like, uh, I'm asking about this. So yeah, your research gate is very, very full. And of course, the that link will be in the show notes and I'll include any other ones that you and I discuss. But Mihal, you're sure, so Sure, yeah, I can send you, I can send you, uh, I have like a personal web page when it, our project links there. So Oh, that's perfect. There, yeah, that's uh, perfect. That's exactly what or, I need or anyone yeah. needs. <laughs> and the only, only kind of social media I guess I'm active is, is Twitter. So like most papers we, we publish, we put a link on Twitter. So it's also a Twitter account. It's one option. Yeah, oh, perfect. Perfect. Uh, yeah. And some then, people would be interested. Yeah. Yeah. I'll make sure <laughs> I get all of those links for, for you so that people can just go to one spot and just look at the show notes for this episode and, and make sure that they follow you in all of your interesting carnivore work but oh yeah. thanks so much Mihal. you are incredible and again like i said i this is just episode one of many because i just out of my own curiosity and i'm sure uh the rewildology community as well we want to keep up to date on this really interesting research that you're doing so again thank you for spending your evening with me yeah thank you very much for interest and yeah helping to share some of the messages some insights from the carnival world not just from you know our team but also all the other Great podcast you've done. So I yeah. also appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Mia. Do you also feel like you just took an entire wildlife ecology course in a little more than an hour? I felt that way recording our conversation and listening to it again while putting this episode together. If you have a question for Miha, drop a comment on this episode's post on the Rewildologist Facebook page. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer. If you are a fellow podcaster and would like to hire Heather to help with your show, she'd be more than happy to talk to you. Please reach out through one of our social channels or email us to be connected with Heather. I'd also like to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we'll rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.